Hey friends, it's an honor for me to be part of this incredible conference. I want to thank Pastor Priji for the uh, invitation and the opportunity to talk to all of you uh, for a few moments and to encourage you in the things of the Lord. Specifically, my assignment is to talk about the idea of evangelism. And so as you guys are dreaming of revival, uh, I pray that this uh, session and these moments that I get to share with you uh, will be an encouragement and will be a blessing to you. Um, my name is Fanu and I uh, have the privilege of uh, being the founder of a ministry called Passion to Reach Ministries. Uh, that's a global evangelistic ministry and also uh, to be the regional director for church planting for an amazing church here in Canada called Village Church. And so uh, Pastor Priji and I have uh, uh, been in relationship and been connected on and off for many years now and I'm so uh, thrilled to see what the Lord is doing through uh him and uh, the, the team uh, that he's leading there at Bangalore Revival Center. And so again, uh, it's an honor for me to be a part of this conference. I want to uh, talk to you today uh, about the idea of living on mission. And then I'm going to give you some practical tools, especially for those of you that are pastors and leaders, how to lead through uh, a missional transformation in your local church um, uh, assemblies and bodies and uh, as you're gathering people, equipping people, mobilizing people for the work of the ministry. So let me read for you uh, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Um, again, I have a screen in front of me, so in case you see me looking and, and reading, it's because I've got my notes uh, on the screen in front of me. So uh, excuse the fact that I'm not looking at the camera uh, throughout this session. Matthew 28, 16 to 20 says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I mean, this is obviously so familiar to all of us. Uh, you know, this is the great commission of Jesus. He's talking about this idea of making disciples. And uh, he's talking about this idea of reaching people with the gospel. And so I want to start from here talking about this idea of what does it mean to become missional. So eyes closed. Let's pray for a quick moment before I start. Father, thank you. Thank you that you're already here. Thank you that you're already present. Thank you that you're already working in the hearts of your people. Thank you that you are the one that gives us the grace. You are the great mobilizer of your people to do uh, that which you have already willed to do through our lives. Lord, I thank you that it is not in our strength that we do what you've called us to do, but it is your Holy Spirit that gives us the strength, the wisdom, the strategy, the innovative ideas, and the courage to step out on the water to do the will of God for our lives and in our community. So Lord, would you speak to us? Would you encourage us? Would you inspire us? And would you move us to action today? Holy Spirit, have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, you know, the Bible obviously talks about Jesus is talking here. He's talking about all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This idea of disciple making. You know, friends, part of what I think has often happened in Christendom is we have this misguided understanding that we are called simply to birth people into the kingdom of God. 
I want to talk about that first as a foundational truth before I go into uh, some of the points I want to share with you. Uh, you know, I traveled around the world for many, many years, um, 20 plus nations around the world, preaching the gospel, doing conferences, doing crusades, all kinds of things. And, and I remember, and I started when I was 19, so uh, I'm 35 now, so about 16 years now. And, um, you know, I remember part of the challenge I had when I initially started off in ministry was... Uh, the scorecard wasn't really clear to me. Like, what is it that we're actually trying to accomplish here? And for me, oftentimes, it was somebody saying a sinner's, the sinner's prayer or somebody signing a decision card or somebody, uh, you know, just, just raising their hand and maybe repeating a prayer after me. And, and, that, and that, to me, was the win. It was like, you know what? Yes, that's what you know, we're after. As long as people pray the prayer, as long as people raise their hand, as long as people sign a card, then we're all good. And yet, the more I began to study and understand God's word, and I began to hear uh, people as they began to preach from this passage of scripture, I started looking at it again with fresh eyes. And I said, wait a minute, Jesus didn't call us just to make converts. He didn't just call us so we would just you know, have a bunch of people that we could say, uh, raise their hand, that we could say, pray to prayer. Because what does raising your hand really do, ultimately? What does praying a prayer really do? I mean, we know this. If you're a Christian, I mean, we pray so many prayers. Not every prayer is the same. Not every prayer is prayed in faith. Not every prayer is prayed with the right intention. And if that's the case for Christians, imagine for somebody that's not a Christian. Now, don't get, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you cannot pray the prayer and God won't do something in your heart. I'm not saying that you can't make a decision and a commitment uh, at an altar, at a church, or a crusade or some kind of a gospel meeting and that God wouldn't work in your heart. Of course he will. But my point is that in and of itself isn't the call of the Christian. It's not the call of the Christian to just get people to the point of commitment. Jesus' goal was make disciples. Jesus' goal was I want you to help form people into the likeness of who I am. What you see in me is what I want you to replicate in others. Now, you're, you're saying to me, well, Pastor Fenu, I mean, that's impossible. I mean, only God could do that. Of course, that's true. But the point is, we set up our approach to ministry and the systems to ministry in a way that we're actually looking for that end goal. That's ultimately what matters. We have a two-year-old or two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a six-month-old, uh, Lauren and Catherine. And you know, one of the greatest uh, things I'm learning in this season of parenting is giving birth is the easy part. Now, now I'm sure all the women listening to me will say, well, bro, you have no clue. But And, and that's true. I haven't experienced it myself. I've seen my wife, obviously, um, deliver both our babies. And so I, I can appreciate some of what, uh, you know, a woman goes through, a mother goes through in giving birth. But I mean, that's that's for a moment. That's a couple of hours. You're in extreme pain and then the baby's born. But man, the amount of work it takes to make that child a disciple, forget of Jesus, a disciple of, of the family. You know, this is how you do things. Like this morning, my daughter woke up and wanted cookies. First thing in the morning, she wants to start her day off eating cookies. And it was a whole back and forth conversation and you know and, and so and, and I was thinking back because yesterday we had a bunch of other conversations and heated discussions and 
trying to un- help her understand the, the, the rhythm of life and how we do life and how we do things at home and, you know, how we play, how we put our toys away, what we eat, when we eat, you know, all these kinds of things. And it's, it's never ending. It's not for two hours. It's not for four hours. It's not for a day. It's not for a week. It's not for a month. It's going to be for years. For years and years, we will have to work with our daughters to help them become the people they ought to be first, you know, just for the world, for society, and then obviously for the kingdom of God. Here's my point. If the focus ends up being just in the birthing, then as soon as the birthing's done, you say to yourself, I've won. But my victory as a father will not be just when she's born, will not be when she starts crawling, won't be just when she starts walking, won't be when she starts to go to kindergarten. My victory is going to be when she ends up becoming an adult and begins to contribute to the world around her and to the kingdom of God. That's when I'll know if I've really won. And so here's what I want to ask you. Here's what, how I want to challenge you. And I'm starting off my message to you with a challenge. It's when we talk about evangelism, when we talk about reaching people with the gospel, what are we talking about? Are we talking about just a momentary transaction? Or are we talking about a lifetime of investment in people so they can become fully formed disciples of Jesus? Uh, let me just read uh, something off for you here about what it means to be missional. The term missional defines the lifestyle of one who believes that his or her life was offered to the world as a gift from God for a specific purpose. The missional lifestyle is based on the core belief that this purpose is to be the undiluted expression of the love of the Father towards all of humankind that was revealed through the sacrificial death on the cross and is witnessed by the compassionate conviction of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the unsaved. So the missional lifestyle or the mission, or what it means to be missional, number one, it's a lifestyle. It's not a momentary thing. And this is why the whole, you know, momentary thing. Now, you know, it's, you know, it's easy to birth a child because you don't have to do anything. You don't have to model anything. You just have to push this baby out of you. But, but you know why it's so hard to train up a child, as the Bible says? Because, because they're watching you. I mean, listen, if you're on your phone all the time, your kids are going to be going to want to be on their phone all the time. If you're watching TV all the time, then that's what they're going to want to do. If you eat junk food all the time, guess what? That's what they're going to want to do. So if then you want to help them become the people that you know they ought to be, then you have to begin to change yourself. And friends, let me tell you something. It is 10 times more difficult to change your habits than it is to go through a couple of hours of pain to birth a baby. And here's what I'm saying, and here's my heart in this, is I want us to think about reaching people from the perspective, not of just birthing, but the perspective of a lifestyle. The question we ought to ask ourselves today when we talk about evangelism is, what is my lifestyle? How do I live my life? What does my life look like? Is my, does my life glorify Jesus? Does my life um, communicate the principles and the values and the DNA of the kingdom of God? Because if it doesn't, then evangelism is not going to happen. And if it does, it's not going to be true evangelism because you're not going to be able to take that brand new person and help them become a Christian, a follower of the Christ. 
Evangelism is followers of Jesus who are making other followers of Jesus. It's a lifestyle. And you look at your life as being offered as a gift to the world. Why is that important? Because, you know, this we just had Christmas. And um, there was a lot of gift exchanges that happened. The thing about a gift is this. The gift doesn't get to decide who it's being given to. So as an example, you know, my uh, older daughter, Lauren, <laughs> can be pretty tough with her toys. So she's gotten multiple, you know, dolls and uh, uh, blocks and just different toys, right? Now, if those toys, uh, they're obviously lifeless, but if they were alive just for a moment, like, you know, think of like an animated movie or something, they were alive. Think of, think of their desire to say, oh, I don't like this child. This child is horrible when it comes to how she deals with her toys. You know, she's smashing her toys and she's throwing her toys and she's never packing up her toys. And I don't want to be the gift to this child. Can I be gifted to somebody else? Well, listen, the gift doesn't get to decide that. See, part of the idea of being, of the understanding that you're a gift from God to the world is... That it's, this is beyond me. I am not the giver. God is the giver of the gift. And I am not the recipient. The recipient of the gift of my life, of my faith, of my prayer time, of my power and authority in Jesus, of my understanding of the word, of my love, of my compassion, of my generosity. The recipients are the people amongst whom God has placed me. And so this is the challenge when often when we talk about evangelism is this idea that you leave the place where God has placed you to go to some other place for this check mark on the scorecard so you can feel good about the people that you've touched and impacted in that place. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't go. Of course, there's biblical precedent to people going. But, but my point is we are primarily called to the place where God has planted us. And if we're going to be true and effective in evangelism and in reaching people, we have to come to terms with the fact that I don't get to pick the recipient of God's gift to the world. Everything I am and all of my experiences, God has chosen to place me in a specific place for a specific time. And I have to do my best to honor God and be obedient to Him in how I reflect Jesus and the gospel to those people in that community. And that's what matters. I, I want to share with you, I want to share with you three um, foundational truths when it comes to living on mission. Uh, number one is God initiates mission. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 says, Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom shall I send? As a messenger to this people, who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. Let me read that again. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. 1 John 4.14 says, furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. See, God is the one who initiated mission. I mean, right from uh, the Garden of Eden, uh, right after man committed sin, God is the one that came 
to Adam and Eve. God is the one who came looking for uh, fallen humanity. And this idea, the, the Christocentric mission is what God is going to do to redeem mankind working through the church to establish his purpose in countless communities globally. This is what it's about. Mission is not what the church decides it would like to do. Rather, mission is what God has determined he will do to reconcile man to himself. So this is, all churches say, wow, we're going to do mission. Well, listen, you can't do mission. You can only be the mission of God. Because it's God who, who initiates mission. We don't initiate mission. It's God who uses us for his mission. Henry Blackaby um, said this. It's a very famous quote. I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, where he said, find out what God's doing uh, in the world and join him. Mission is a movement from God to the world. The church is an instrument of God in fulfilling his mission. And the mission of God informs the church on how it should carry out its work in the community and how each Christian should relate to those who have been carefully assigned to his or her circle of influence. Again, mission is a movement from God to the world. You and I are just jumping in the stream, if you will that's flowing from heaven to earth. And the church, the body of believers, is an instrument for God. Not, not, we're, we're, not the, we're not the ones who decide if there's going to be mission in Bangalore, if there's going to be mission in Toronto, if there's going to be mission. No, no, no. God decides that. We're simply the tools. We're the instruments that God uses uh, to allow His mission to be fulfilled. Uh, number two, passion drives mission. Matthew 26, 38 to 39, uh, he told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Mark 3, 5 to 6 says he looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Uh, then he said to the man, hold out your hand. And so the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Uh, God's passion for mission is evidenced in the sending of Christ to become the ultimate sacrifice for human sin. The perfect union between the Father and the Son was broken for the sake of the mission of God. Christ's passion for God's mission caused him to suffer unspeakable pain and suffering and endure the most humiliating death on the cross. Friends, listen. If you and I are going to live out on mission, there's got to be passion. Passion is what drives mission. If the passion that was in Jesus that took him to the cross is not found in our hearts for the lost in our communities. Every strategy we try will fail. Everything we try to do to mobilize people to become more missional will fall flat. Why? Because it has to come from this prompting that comes only from the Holy Spirit. He's got to fill our hearts with a burden for the hearts, for the souls of the people around us that are far from Jesus. And the Bible is so clear again and again and again about the passion. And this is part of what I love about Paul. He talks about his passion when he says, forgetting those things that are behind. I press on towards that high mark, that high calling 
of Jesus for my life. In, when you and I come to a place where we forget what's behind us, we forget who we are. Paul says the same thing. He says, listen, everything I am, I've given it up. I've counted it as rubbish. I've counted it as dung, meaning nothing I am matters in the context of what I've been called to do. Passion drives mission. And number three, the spirit empowers mission. Acts chapter 1 and 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 4.31, after this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and then they preached the word of God with boldness. God's mission is completely dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus commanded his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until he sent them the promised Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin and draws people to faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Friends, listen, I mean, you probably don't need me to say this to you. You probably know this already, but I want to remind you that mission is empowered by the Spirit of God. All the money in the world, all the wisdom and the strategy of this world, um, all the gimmicks of the world, because a lot of times in church and ministries, we try gimmicks to try to get people to say yes to Jesus. None of that really works. And, and, and the greatest um, tragedy of that is we sometimes give people false hope that they are saved. This is important, friends. If we tell somebody that they have come to know Jesus and Jesus lives in their heart, based on a moment, based on maybe, maybe uh, a, an extreme need, maybe, you know, an emotional time for them. It, it's tragic because we, they think they know Jesus, but they don't really know Him. And so it's so important that we always, always, let me say that again, it is important that we always depend on the Spirit to convict, and the Spirit to confess, and the Spirit to manifest who the children of God really are. You and I have no ability or authority to declare someone saved. We don't know. What do we do know is the Bible gives us a blueprint of how you can be saved. And if a person follows that blueprint, and is sincere in their desire, and commits to following Jesus, and then follows Jesus, then, in fact, let me add another step, and begins to manifest the fruits of following Jesus, then we know they're of the faith. We know they follow Jesus. And so it's important that we take ourselves out of the equation, and we rely on the Holy Spirit to be able to do the work. So again, God initiates mission, passion drives mission, and the Spirit empowers mission. Next, I want to talk to you about the missionary heart of God. Uh, God is in the garden. And the question is, are you willing to walk through the garden? Genesis 3, 8 to 10 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, 
and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You know, one of the most powerful um, portions of scripture uh, in the Bible to me is this passage where the perfect one begins to walk in the midst of imperfection for the very first time, right? Um, the first time in human history where God has had to deal with the sin of humanity. He's had to deal with the fallen nature of humanity. And the last time God was in the garden, it was a perfect place. This time God's in the garden, it's an imperfect place. It's a cursed place. But what I find amazing and fascinating is God is still in the garden. Somehow it seems that the blessedness of the place or the cursedness of the place, if that's even a word, um, doesn't seem to matter to God. Somehow it seems that uh, if the ground is producing a great harvest of fruits and vegetables and beautiful plants, or if it's producing a harvest because of sin and because of the curse of thorns and thistles, that God doesn't seem to mind either. Somehow the common denominator to why God is in the garden seems to be not the state of humanity, but the presence of humanity. Think about that for a moment. If God was concerned with our state, he shouldn't be in the garden now. If the only thing that made God attracted to man was the fact that he was holy, that man was holy, that man was sinless, man was pure before the fall, then after the fall, God should have nothing to do with the garden because the state of man has changed. He is now fallen. He is now a sinner. He is now being disconnected in relationship from God. And yet the common denominator seems to be that God is in love with humanity. Perfect humans, imperfect humans. Humans that love him unconditionally and obey him or humans that don't love him or at least don't exhibit that love through obedience. It seems that God is more concerned with human beings than he is with the state in which he finds them in the garden. Friend, let me encourage you today, when you think about evangelism, this is the first thing that I think matters the most. We need to start falling in love with human beings. And I know that's hard, because human beings can be difficult to deal with. But we need to come to a place where we're able to accept, we're able to embrace, Humanity for what it is. Created by God in His image. No longer exhibiting the presence of God or the principles and the values and the nature of God, for sure. Uh, in fact, probably in most cases, very strongly exhibiting the sin nature that is in them. And yet our call is to, to love the person regardless of the state that we find them in. I find it fascinating that God is walking in the garden. I find it fascinating that God's heart, and maybe I should say God's missionary heart, is on a search to find Adam. Adam, where are you? Not, not, not Adam reaching out to God, but God reaching out to Adam. Friend, here's how I want to challenge you today as I talk about this. When was the last time you reached out to somebody that wasn't reaching out to you? 
What was the last time you went looking for somebody that was intentionally trying to hide from you? When was the last time you intentionally went over to love on somebody that was actively trying to avoid you? It's tough, but it's the heart of God. It's what he did. And this is who God is. See, number one, Psalm 69 and 5 says, Oh God, you know how foolish I am. My sins cannot be hidden from you. God knows our sin. Number two, Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. God has an answer for our sin. And number three, Acts 9.3-6, As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Number three, God wants to save sinners. God knows your sin. God has an answer for your sin and God wants to save sinners. Friends, let's get this into our hearts today. God wants to save sinners. God doesn't want to save perfect people, righteous people, holy people, religious people, people that think they're all good. God wants to save people that know, that know that they're sinners, know that there's no hope for them, and yet He's chasing after them. So number one, again, to recap, God is in the garden. And the question is, are you willing to walk through your garden? Whatever the garden is for you, whatever the place is for you that you say this is the opposite to my nature, opposite to what I would like, opposite to what I, I would feel comfortable in, I, I just don't want to be here. And yet that's, that's the garden. You know, God hates sin. He has no reason to be there. And yet he is there because he still loves man. He still loves woman. He still loves Adam and Eve, whom he created. And so, are you willing to walk in the garden? Number two, God's heart is racing. How is your spiritual pulse? Isaiah 62 and 1, Because I love Zion, I will not keep still. Because my heart yearns for Jerusalem, I cannot remain silent. I will not stop praying for her until her righteousness shines like the dawn and her salvation blazes like a burning torch. You know what I love about God is that He is emotionally invested in humanity. I mean, just think about that for a moment. God's heart is invested in your salvation and in my salvation. This is not some kind of robotic, transactionary thing that happens where God says, well, you know, I mean, hey, here's the gospel. I've done what I can for you. If you want to accept me, great. If you don't want to accept me, who cares? You know, it's funny. It's like, uh, it's like raising children again. And uh, there are times where, you know, I will, in disciplining my daughter, I will say things to her that I know are painful for her to follow. So an example could be, you know, she has to eat a certain food that we've cooked and she wants to eat chocolate instead. And we say to her, well, I mean, this is your only option. If not, you're going to be hungry for the next few hours. Now, she may choose to not eat, 
And it may look like, for me, a binary sort of transactionary decision that, you know what, if she doesn't want to eat, so be it. But you know what's interesting? Even though I start off that way, as a father, eventually my heart begins to hurt because it doesn't matter what she's chosen. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, if she, you know, if she needs to learn better and she needs to, you know, whatever the reasons may be. And, and it may be right. I may be right and she may be wrong. But, but it doesn't matter. I still love her. And it hurts me if she, if I think or I feel that she's hungry. And, and this is the heart of God. You know, the heart of God is constantly racing for humanity. Sure, humanity is making that decision. Sure, humanity may be rejecting his love. But it doesn't change the fact that the, 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 the sin and the pain and the brokenness that their choices have brought upon themselves still hurts the heart of God. And so my, my challenge to us is, how often do we weep? How much does our heart race? How, how often does your pulse race? Because your heart is so in love with people around you. And your heart goes out to them, even though you know they're making choices to live and walk in disobedience to the will of God for their life. Uh, just three quick points under God's heart is racing. Number one is love. Jeremiah 31, 3, long ago the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you. And my people, my people with an everlasting love, with unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. God says, man, all the stuff you've done to me, all the rejection, all the disobedience, all the idolatry. He says, long time ago, I told myself how much I love you and I still do. Number two, mercy. Psalms 86 and 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Not all those who do right, not all those who obey, not all those who follow all of your principles. No, to all of those who call you. Mercy. If you want to be a great evangelist, man, you have to have mercy. And number three, uh, is life. John 10, 9-11. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to kill, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and that you, they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, for his sheep. And this idea that God is calling us to give our lives and this sort of connects to my initial point that God is not looking for people that have um, become well-versed in the psychology of getting people to make a decision of one way or the other. God is not looking for people that have figured out the right words and the right sentences and the right scripture to put together in the right moment with the right worship music so they can get people to say yes to following Jesus. God is looking for people that are willing to lay down their life, lay down their life for the sake of the people that He's calling them to reach. God's not looking for our eloquence. He's looking for our life. And, um, and number three is God is recruiting an army. Um, Acts chapter 9, 15 to 16, But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument 
to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Um, three quick points. I'm going to run through this because I have to hit this next uh, section here quickly. Uh, one is the passion of the suffering Savior. Isaiah 53, 11-12 talks about um, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins, and I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. God is calling for an army of people that are willing to suffer for the sake of the people that God is calling us to reach. Number two, the purpose of the obedient son. Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. God is calling us. If we want to live on mission, he's calling us as an army to obey him even at the cost of humility even at the cost of looking like we don't know, uh, you know, we don't know any better, uh, looking like we are less than, just so we can reach the people we're called to reach. Um, and number three, the pleasure of the King of Kings, uh, Ephesians 1.5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. May we be people who constantly seek to bring pleasure to the King of Kings, knowing that this is what pleases the Father's heart, that many will be brought into a relationship with Him, reconciled with Him, to Him, through the death of His Son, Jesus. Um, I want to switch gears now, and just because of time, um, I only have a few more minutes left. I want to talk to you about um, something we share with churches and leaders here um, called the missional influence model. And so we talked about living on mission. We talked about this idea of, of um, being incarnational, doing life, serving the people around us. Um, etc. And how do we do this now as a church? And that's what I want to uh, focus on for the next couple of minutes. Um, what is the missional church? Uh, the missional church is the church's true and authentic organizing principle. Um, when, the, when, when the church's true and authentic organizing principle is mission, that's when you call a church a missional church. Meaning, you know, this church, you know, and let me, let me share this with you. Um, I'll share my own experience. Um, I grew up in a, in a Pentecostal church in the Middle East, um, an Indian Pentecostal church. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. We call ourselves Pentecostals, and I've often, often wondered why we call ourselves Pentecostals. Uh, because, of course, Pentecost is a huge part of the New Testament Christian experience, and yet it's just one part of it. There's so many other elements of the New Testament Christian that matter. Um, but anyway, so we call them us as the Pentecostals. And I remember part of the challenge was this, is that we organized ourselves around the principle of 
being filled in the spirit, speaking in tongues, prophesying, and demonstrations of the spirit of God. That was everything for us. So, so in other words, if let's say if um, we had a service and 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 someone prophesied, someone got up and prophesied, and it was accurate, and it was to the you know to the point, all this. We or, or 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 you know worship happened and then at the end of you know how in Indian circles right worship happens and at the end everyone's like speaking in tongues and everyone's like clapping and everyone's all you know fully engaged in that moment then they're like oh that was an amazing service church was so good right and yet um, I never. I don't, from what I can tell, at least at this point, I'm 35 now, so we're going back 20 years or so, over 20 years, but I don't remember a time when we said, wow, church was amazing because we had five people, you know, make commitments to Jesus. Church was amazing because we had five stories of how, you know, five people from our church shared their faith with five people in their workplace, and those people were interested in understanding and learning more about Jesus. That just never happened. So, so unfortunately, it was like we, we made our organizing principle the, the tool by which we were supposed to do the thing that actually mattered. In other words, if, if the Spirit of God, I'm just using this in, um, in context of this specific example, but if the Spirit of God is like the fuel in a car, the fuel that runs a car, right? We were excited. Like we were going to the petrol station, right? Or the gas station, as we would say in Canada. We're going to the gas station and we were having a celebration. We have gas. This is amazing. And yet we have no cars. Because the point of the fuel is to, is to move the car so it gets to the destination. The point of the Spirit of God is that He empowers us so we can live as witnesses. So if we're not living as witnesses, if we're not reaching people, if we're not on mission, then just celebrating the fact that we have the Spirit of God doesn't, doesn't really make sense. I, I hope that analogy connects with you. And so a missional church is a church whose true and authentic uh, organizing principle is mission. And when the church is on mission, it is the true church. The church itself is not only a product of that mission, but is obligated and destined to extend it by whatever means possible. Meaning, the church exists because of mission in the first place. You know, all of us here are Christians because somebody reached us. So if we were all in one church, for instance, the reason that church would exist is because of mission. Somebody was on mission to reach us. And if we are the product of mission... How important is it that we are destined to extend the same mission to others who also need to come to know Jesus? So when a church forgets the reason it exists and why it exists and how it came into existence, which is through mission, and forgets the obligation it has now to pay it forward. You know, we have this thing here. I was listening to a friend preach the other day. He's talking about this thing happens quite often here. You know, we're going through a drive-through, buying a coffee. You get to the window, the drive-through window, and the person says, um, "Hey, you know, the person ahead of you who just went ahead of you actually paid for your coffee, so it's free, right?" And then, so obviously, as a person, if that happens to you, your natural, initial, instantaneous reaction is, "Well, okay, well, I'll just pay for the person behind me." Why would we do that? Because when, when you receive, when you're the recipient of a gift, 
your natural inclination is, well, maybe I should just do the same for somebody else. If, if we've been the recipients of mission and the benefit of someone else, you know, being on mission, then shouldn't we pass the same thing along to someone else is the question. Mission is the originator of the church, not the other way around. That's important. The mission is the originator of the church, not the other way around. The church doesn't decide, hey, we're going to do mission. No, no. The church exists because of mission. Mission comes first before the church. The early church is the purest model of the missional church. The, their ultimate purpose and organizing principle um, was to worship God and lead others to the worship of their God. In other words, they were fully engaged with God's purpose for their lives and sought to draw others into an experience with a God of purpose and destiny. I'm going to skip through some of my notes here uh, just because I want to be able to uh, address a, an important um, point, a few points here. I'm calling it the seven shifts of the missional church. Uh, this is something that uh, my friend Kevin Harney in uh, California came up with and, and we've sort of worked the model and um, adapted it and helped a lot of churches with sort of understanding how to live uh, and how to mobilize people on mission. So uh, let me give it to you quickly. Number one, seven shifts. Again, seven shifts for the missional church. So if you're going to live on mission, if your church is going to be on mission, here are seven things you need to consider. Number one, from random to strategic. From random to strategic. John 4, 4, he had to go through Samaria on the way and eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone to the village to buy some food. We can't leave it to chance that we're going to be able to reach people. This is important. I want you to catch this. What did Jesus do? He initiated an intentional opportunity to connect with the Samaritan woman. Uh, you know, it's interesting. One of the markers of, the, of, of health um, of a church uh, in any assessment that you do uh, is intentional evangelism. And a study of the top denominations in the U.S. found that this was the evangelism, the indicator, the marker for evangelism was the lowest out of all the other markers, out of worship, out of kids ministry, out of preaching, out of everything else. Evangelism was at the lowest level. Um, we say that this is important, but we don't really hold people accountable for it. Meaning every church says, yeah, we need to evangelize, but we don't ask the question. Have you evangelized? Have you shared your faith with anyone in the last week? Like we, we, we hold people accountable for church attendance, right? If as a pastor, you don't see someone coming to church on Sunday, um, you're going to be like, hey, where were you? Right? Like that's just natural. Or, 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 or for tithing. Now, if someone said, uh, you know, hey, um, I, I haven't been able to give to the church for the last two months. As a pastor, you're going to be like, hey, what's going on here? You know, if this is your home church, you should support your home church. But we don't do the same with evangelism. We don't sort of, you know, talk to our people and say, hey, how was the last month? How was the last two weeks? Did you share your faith? We say it's important, but we don't always, um, we don't always hold people accountable uh, to the thing that we say is important. Uh, we need a contextualized strategy. Where do we live? 
who lives in our community, and how could we effectively reach them? See, a lot of churches will say this. We want to see people say, 2021, what do we want to see happen? We want to see 200 people come to faith in Jesus. Great. Excellent. That's an awesome desire. But all it is is a desire unless you have a plan. How are you going to see 200 people saved? How many of your people need to be engaged in missional living in order to see 200 people saved? What kind of people are you hoping to reach next year? I mean, when you say 200 people, there could be all kinds of people. You could find people that are maybe like people that left the church. You could find people that are atheists. You could find people that are, you know, of a different religious background. You could find rich people, poor people. You could find educated people, uneducated people. You could find people in the city, people in the village. And every category and demographic of person you need to reach differently as far as strategy. But what happens is often most churches, if you ask them the question, 2021, what are you going to do? Who are you going to reach? How are you going to reach them? Chances are they have not thought about it and if they have thought about it they haven't actually written it out to say this is the plan of how we hope to reach people next year uh, you know we do strategy all the time i use this example often you know no church says to the worship team you know what just come on sunday about 20 minutes before service starts and you know just figure out how you're going to do worship like just figure out what songs you want to do and you know, just just do it. It doesn't. You don't have to come early. You don't have to practice. Don't just just don't even bother with that stuff. Just show up 15, 20 minutes early, and whatever happens, happens. We God, watch this. God knows our heart. That's what matters. That never happens, right? Of course, God knows our heart, but we also put everything we can into being as well prepared and planned out as possible, so that our worship services go are with are, are done with excellence. Same thing with our kids' ministry, right? We, we know what, we know how many classes we're going to have. We know what curriculum we're using. We know what lesson we're teaching next Sunday. Like we know this stuff. We plan for it. But again, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to living on mission, it's like, well, well you know, we, God knows our heart. God knows we want to see people saved. And I guess we'll pray and just do our best. And often there isn't a strategy behind it. Strategy, when done well, is spirit-infused. Strategy and planning make room for the Spirit of God. Because this is the other issue that a lot of churches have, especially um, charismatic Pentecostal churches. They feel that if you plan, if you prepare, then God's not in it. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Because if you look at, if you look at God in creation, if you look at God in the story of Israel, if you look at God in the birth and the, the life of Jesus, God is a master planner. And when you plan in um, alignment with the Spirit's leading, you actually are making room, you're setting a stage, you're creating a platform for the Holy Spirit to be able to move. Number two, from famine to funding. This is important. Matthew 14, 15, uh, and 16 says this, That evening the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, that isn't necessary. You feed them. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, often what happens is this. We budget in our churches, now speaking to church leaders, we budget for a new sound system. We budget for our rent. We budget for our salaries. We budget for graphics, we budget for media, we budget for all these different aspects of ministry, which, by the way, we should do. Uh, that's important. We need, we need budgets and money for all of that. 
But often what happens is we don't necessarily budget for evangelism. We don't have a budget to say, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to bless our people with, you know, $50 once a month so they can show an act of kindness to someone in their community. Or, or we're going to, you know, purchase so many Bibles, or we're going to buy so many Jesus movies, or we're, I, I don't want to, I don't even know all the practical ways that you can do this in your setting. So I don't want to, you know, use my examples because it won't really make sense to you maybe. But the question is this, do we budget for evangelism? Like, do we have a plan? Where I mean, we're literally, you know, I'm recording this in the last few days of 2020, you're watching this the, the beginning of 2021, and it's like, do we have a budget for evangelism in our churches for 2021? And what does that look like? And how much are we spending? And how are we reaching people? This stuff matters. You know, we, you know, it's interesting. In a North American context, we will spend so much money and staffing on worship. I mean, worship is like the biggest deal for us, right? So we'll pay, you know, musicians. We'll um, hire a worship pastor. Depending on the size of the church, we may have one full-time worship pastor, one technical director. Uh, we'll spend all this money on, you know, instruments and and software and all this stuff. Lots of money on that stuff. Kids ministry and youth ministry. That's huge. Usually we'll have a kids pastor and a youth pastor and curriculum for them and, you know, uh, summer kids camps and all this stuff that we're spending money on. And you look at a lot of churches, most churches I'd say, you, you look at if worship is important, which it is, family ministry is important, which it is, uh, preaching is important, we hire the, you know, we hire a, a teaching pastor, or a senior pastor, you know, all these people, administrative assistant for the pastor so he can focus on his preaching um, study time and all of that. That's important. Uh, building, facility, maintenance, all that, that's important, right? So all these are important. And then you look at evangelism. And most times, it's a volunteer that leads evangelism in the church. If there is a staff position, it's like a part-time staff position with multiple other responsibilities. Because we don't see evangelism as being, hey, a critical department of the church. Like, let's say, worship or kids ministry or youth ministry or preaching for that matter. And so the question is this, do we really care? If we're going to shift into being missional churches, we've got to go from famine to funding when it comes to reaching people with the gospel. I asked churches to do this exercise, which is really interesting, where I, I tell them, take your expenses for the year. And again, you can do this now that 2020 is done. Go over your your expense sheet for your church for 2020 and use one color, um, I don't know, let's say yellow, and highlight every cost, every expense that was used, that, that served primarily your home church. So the, the primary reason, like again, I'll give you an example. Right now through COVID, everyone's streaming their services. They're not streaming their services primarily to reach new people. They're streaming their services primarily uh, because they want their church family to be able to experience church. I mean, so that's the only way because you can gather in person. So mark off everything that's primarily serving the internal body of the church. And then take another color, maybe a red. And then mark off everything that was spent primarily for people outside of your church. And it's a great exercise to do, to see the line items, of number of line items for yellow versus red, and also the amounts in yellow versus red. And by the way, do not include global missions 
under evangelism. Because again, what we do is we say we say to people, oh yeah, we're, we, we care about souls. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a bunch of money. We're going to send it to Africa. Or we're going to send it to India. We're going to send it somewhere. And it's like, yeah, that's good. We should do that. Don't get me wrong. It's like another department that matters, like worship, like kids ministry, like youth ministry, etc. But it's not evangelism. It's not reaching people in your community. Number three, from believing to belonging. Luke 19, 5-7 says, When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, Quick, come down, and I must be your guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. Uh, he has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled. You know, it's interesting that when this incident happens, Zacchaeus actually comes out of his home after dinner with Jesus, a transformed man. If we're going to be missional churches, we have to be okay with people um, belonging before they believe. And that's tough. And, and what I mean by that is this. Of course, we understand theologically that those who are born again and have come to faith in Jesus and have repented of their sins and have been baptized, they are part of the family of God, right? Meaning, if you haven't done that, then you're not part of the family of God. So we get that. Theologically, I'm not arguing that point. But socially, societally, the question is this. Are we okay with people hanging around our church and in our church before they've become believers? And how comfortable are we with that? If we're going to be missional, we have to think about evangelism on a scale. If at the middle of the scale is the point of conversion, and on the right of the scale is the growth of the Christian, then on the left of the scale is your pre-evangelism days. Your, your pre-salvation days. And if we want to do, if we want to continue to have relationship with people post-conversion, which is what we really talked about in the last sort of session, then we have to make sure we're already building relationship pre-conversion so that the post-conversion relationship continues to be strong. In other words, if the moment you become saved is like when the, when the uh, seedling germinates and comes out of the ground, then we have to ensure that the roots of that seed have already started going into the ground before the plant comes out of the ground into sunlight, into air. And, and, and this is important because often in our culture today, especially for those of you that are in cities, when you say Jesus, People think they know who Jesus is. They think they have an idea of who Jesus is. Often, their understanding of Jesus is skewed. It's not even right. But they think they know what Jesus, who Jesus is. So just preaching Jesus to them is not going to be sufficient. Living and demonstrating Jesus to them is just going to be, is going to be as important. And it's very hard to live and demonstrate the different facets of who Jesus is without allowing people to come into the inner circle, allowing people to experience who Jesus is from a front row vantage point where they can actually see how you and I live our lives, 
how we treat our families, how we raise our kids, how we deal with our spouses, how we manage our money, how we treat people that are unkind to us. All of those things represent who Jesus is to the world. Um, next, from us to them. Acts chapter 11, 14 to 17. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers um, criticized him. You enter the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. Then Peter told them exactly what had happened. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us, when he believed in the Lord, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? See, our thinking, our predisposition must change from being focused on us to thinking about the we, the greater family of God that God is trying to bring uh, into our churches. Uh, often what happens is, you know, churches ask me this question, Pastor Fanu. We don't have enough volunteers. Like we, we, we don't, we don't have more people to do more programs and help the community. And you know, it's just, it's a hard thing for us to do. And I, I say to them, okay, fine. Um, what happens when somebody is sick in your church or someone loses a loved one? What do you do for them? Oh, you know, we visit them in the hospital, we uh, give them, you know, send them a card, send them flowers, we, you know, have people in the church, will cook meals for them, so at least they don't have to worry about food, and we'll drop off the meals for maybe a couple of weeks after the sickness or after the person's passed away, etc., and just sort of generally show them that we love them. I'm like, great, perfect. How about this? How about instead of just doing that for people in your church, why don't you make that available as a service to your community? So you decide how large your community needs to be. Maybe it's everyone that lives in a five-kilometer radius around your church. Um, maybe it is anyone that is, because sometimes you're just, you know, people are not just from the five-kilometer radius. They're spread out and they drive or they, uh, they take transit to get to church. So then maybe it is anyone that's in the friend circle of someone that comes to your church. However you decide who can receive this. What if you took the same thing and simply added the same service to your community? So instead of saying us, we cook meals for us, we send flowers for us, we send cards for us, we visit hospitals for us. And then them, we're not sure what, what they need or we don't have the time or the resources of the people to do that. We say, you know what? We're going to forget about us and them. We're just going to serve meals to anyone in this demographic of people or this area of people that loses a loved one, that ends up in the hospital. That's what we're going to do to serve our community. Uh, next, from programs to praying. Acts chapter 4, 24 says, When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. And, and we know the story, and we know the incident, and we know how they prayed. Prayer is the catalyst of mission. Prayer drives the passion for the mission. And prayer transforms hearts that are prepared for the mission. Here's the reality, friends. You can have all the programs in the world. 
It won't work if it's not saturated in prayer. I've even experienced this. You could do outreaches in your community. Mobilize people from your church to become volunteers to serve people in the community. And these volunteers will get there. And they are so disconnected. So um, unmoved by what they see and who they see and the condition of the people they see. And I've experienced this firsthand. And I said, God, it's not just enough to get the bodies of Christians to serve in the community. You got to get their heart. How do you get their heart? You can't, you can't put the desire in them. Only the Spirit of God can do that. That's why prayer matters more than anything else when it comes to a church being mobilized for mission. Next, from mush to clarity. Acts 4, 12 uh, to 13 says this, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Um, we live in a very um, postmodern culture in Canada, and I'm sure some of the cities in India probably are moving the same trajectory. And the reality is that people want to know what we believe and why we believe what we believe. You know, Peter here is so clear, Peter and John. They're like, this is what we believe. Let me just state it out for you. You know, this is not, they're not trying to be seeker sensitive, right? They're not trying to be like, well, if we say there's only salvation in Jesus, maybe these people are going to be offended and we're trying to get them to come to our church. So let's not say that. Let's not talk about only Jesus. Let's say that Jesus is the way or Jesus loves you. Something more easy, more palatable, right? And that's not what they do. They're just like, listen, guys, I just want you to know what we believe is that Jesus is the only way. And, and, you know what's amazing? People appreciate that honesty and the bluntness of the truth. Even if they don't follow, even if they don't believe, even if they don't come to your church, they appreciate that you told them the truth, the truth that you believe. And so if we're going to be missional, we have to be clear and our people have to be clear on why we believe what we believe. Why do we believe in Jesus? Why do we believe he had to come? Why do we believe he had to die? Why do we believe that he actually rose from the dead? Why do we believe that he will come again? Why do we believe these things? If we don't know why we believe them, people can smell it. Right? They can smell, oh, he doesn't really know. He's just talking all these words. He doesn't really know why he believes what he believes. And so if we want to mobilize our church to live on mission, we have to, uh, we have to go from mush to clarity. And lastly, from fatalism to faith. Mark chapter 5, 41 to 42. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were over overwhelmed and totally amazed. Overwhelmed and totally amazed. You know, friends, um, that's what we pray. We pray that people around us will be overwhelmed and totally amazed. Uh, you know, my, my prayer is that, you know, you're part of this conference and you're going to be so encouraged, inspired, mobilized. 
that you will do things that other Christians, not, not unbelievers, other Christians, other churches will see what you do and say, man, we are overwhelmed and amazed at how God is using that church in our city, how God is using that, that pastor or that leader or that elder or that deacon or that ministry leader or that worship leader or that youth ministry leader or that kids ministry leader or that preacher, whatever it is, in our city. Because, you know, there's so many people that say it's impossible. But God is looking for people that say it is possible. With God, all things are possible. Jesus said to Mary, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Friend, if we believe, we will see the glory of God. If we believe, we will see people in our communities, in our cities come to faith in Jesus. If we believe, we will live on mission and God will use us on mission to transform the world around us. Of course, people are going to say things. The world's not going to respond. We've tried evangelism. It doesn't work. You know, and, and all kinds of things that people will say. But friends, can I tell you something? The God that we serve is the God of the resurrection. And, you know, I'm, I'm involved in the church planting movement now. And part of the reason we're involved in church planting is because, um, you know, we want, to, we want to bring new people to Jesus. And a lot of pastors will say that it's hard to take an existing church and to transform that church with a blueprint for mission. But listen, our God is in the resurrection business. He can resurrect the quote-unquote dead, if you will, even that are within our churches, that don't care, don't think about evangelism, don't care about mission, don't want to see people saved. Just All they care about is God bless me, God help me, God give me the finances, God bless my children, bless my family, all of those things. That's all that they care about. Fred, I want you to believe with me that God is able to inspire them and resurrect them with new life and new vision and a passion for the mission of God for their community and their city through their life. So let's move. Um, I'm going to repeat the, the seven again. Uh, from random to strategic, from famine to funding, from believing to belonging, uh, from us to them, from pro programs to praying, from mush to clarity, and from fatalism to faith. I also want to talk to you about the six um, levels of missional influence, but we're out of time, and I know I'm going to do a live Zoom call, and so hopefully I'll get an opportunity to share uh, a little bit more on that on that Zoom call and then maybe have a conversation with many of you that are part of this conference. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for making the time uh, to just invest in your heart, in your uh, in your mind, in your passion, in in just maybe in you know in your in in God inspiring you. Because a lot of this may not be new information for you, but it's like, hey, it's just another voice, another reminder that God is giving you to be all that He's called you to be and to live on mission for Jesus. God bless you.